Let's open our Bibles this morning, the book of Acts chapter number 6, Acts chapter number 6. I know we have some folks visiting with us today, and we're sure glad that you are here with us. We trust that your time here will be a blessing to you. And I want to let you know that uh, this morning's service um, is going to be a little bit different, especially toward the end here, because this morning we are ordaining two uh, deacons here at Philadelphia Baptist Church. Uh, These are two men that the uh, church family uh, um, nominated and voted to approve to set aside for the office of, uh, serve in the office of a deacon. And uh, so we're going to be at the end of the service today having a a time of prayer and and, uh, laying on of hands um, with them. But before we do that, I want us to uh, take some time this morning to look in Scripture um, about this idea of what a deacon is to begin with. And I've titled the message today, The Blessing of a Deacon. The Blessing of the Deacon. Seems to be a lot of different ideas about what the job of a deacon is. I wonder if somebody were to ask you of your opinion, what what a job of a deacon is, what is a deacon supposed to do in the local church, what you might say. You know, some people have the idea that, uh, and some churches are structured this way, where the deacons are set up as kind of a ruling body. They're roughly the equivalent of a board of directors would be in a corporation, and the church delegates all of its decision-making uh, power to the deacon board, and they, they pretty much run the show, if you will. In other churches, the deacons are elected uh, simply to run the day-to-day operation of the church, and... Uh, in this scenario, they relegate the pastor to the, uh, to the um, duties of preaching, marrying, and burying. I've heard that exact phrase used before by some, um, let's just say, not always pleasant deacons. Uh, when they had a run-in of, with, the, with the preacher, they tell him, your job's to preach, marry, and bury. We need you, we'll call you, you know, that kind of a thing. According to that philosophy, the deacon's job is to control the pastor and protect the church from him. On the other end of the spectrum, you have those who think that the, pastor, that the deacons are supposed to be the yes-men, that they only exist to provide a rubber stamp uh, for whatever whim and fancy the pastor may have, and they're just there to give legitimacy to whatever he uh, dreamed up with after eating a little bit too much pizza too late and having a nightmare about it. No matter what the direction or decision may be, they're there just to simply go along to get along. Well, I don't believe any of those concepts really line up with the biblical idea of the deacon, the purpose of the deacon. And so today we're going to look in Acts chapter 6, and we're going to be looking primarily in the first eight verses of this chapter, where we read about the election of the very first deacons in the New Testament. And according to these verses, we learn that there are some essential qualifications for a deacon. We also learn that deacons are a vital part of a church ministry because they assist the pastor and help free him up to focus on doing what only the pastor can do. Godly deacons are a tremendous blessing to the local church. Let's begin reading in Acts chapter 6 and verse number 1. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called together the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. 
But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word today, I pray that you would help us to appreciate the wisdom uh, of it and uh, of the plan and the pattern that you have laid out for us in Scripture for how the, the local church is to operate. And Lord, we, we understand that all of us are nothing more than just vessels. We're, we're tools that you would use, Lord, to your honor and glory. And, and Lord, I pray that we would remember that our place is simply to obey you, to follow you, and, and to humbly seek to do your will. Lord, I pray for um, these men that later this morning we will be um, setting aside to serve in the office of deacon, that God, you would bless them and their families especially. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the book of Acts, we read of the birth of the local church, the local New Testament church. And those opening chapters are, are pretty exciting to read about. In chapter number 2, you have the day of Pentecost, and that's when the disciples had been praying and, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And, and uh, as a result of that, they had the miraculous ability to speak in, in languages that they had never heard or learned, rather, and, and other people were hearing in their own tongue. And, and Peter stands up that day, and he delivers the... Uh, the first message, the first sermon, and uh, the Bible tells us that thousands of people were saved. We come into chapters 3 and 4 and 5, and we continue to read uh, the same kind of thing happening, that God was really moving through these uh, uh, early believers, and people were coming to Christ uh, by, the, by, uh, by the thousands. And by the time we get to uh, Acts chapter number 6, uh, based on the numbers we have in the book of Acts, it's very possible that the church and in Jerusalem numbered well over 5,000 people. I mean, this became a very large ministry very, very quickly. And in chapter 5, we begin to read of the first, the first troubles, if you will. We have the story of the infamous Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, in that story, Ananias and Sapphira had seen that other people were giving large sums of money to the church and, and uh, to help meet the needs of individuals. And they decided that they would sell a piece of property they had and they would bring some of the money to the church, but they would, they would say it was all the money. So they make it look like they gave all the proceeds, but they wanted to keep a little bit to, for themselves. Well, they, they come in and Ananias comes in first and he brings this offering. And, and so Peter asks him, is this... This is the full price of the sale? Is this, is this everything here? And, and Ananias said, yes, it is. We brought it all. And Peter confronts him with the lie. Peter was obviously that had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that Ananias was relying to him and he confronts him with it. And the Bible says that Ananias died right there. Well, his wife comes in a little while later and uh, Peter asks her the same question and she affirms, yes, that was the full price of the sale. And Peter confronts her for her sin and sure enough, she dies. Now, you're clipping along and your ministry's going great. The church is growing by dozens, hundreds, and thousands. And all of a sudden, two people drop dead in a service. That's going to kind of put a damper on things. 
And so they, uh, they, that was really a shock to the church. And, and everybody kind of began to, uh, you know, take this thing pretty seriously, you might, you might say, uh, realizing that, hey, God wasn't playing around when it came to His local church. And we come to chapter number 6, and we find another problem that arises. And uh, there's really two problems that coincide here. Um, and the first problem we've already talked about, the church was experiencing a time of just explosive growth. Now, we usually don't think about that as a problem, but it, it truly can be sometimes when a ministry grows so fast and so large so quickly, sometimes it can be hard to keep things organized. And as a local church, we, we ought to keep things organized. God is not the author of confusion. All things should be done decently and in order. And, and sometimes when you have a lot of growth, there comes with it the growing pain of disorganization. So they were experiencing this time of growth and uh, people were being added to the church. And, and, uh, and, and as a result of that, there, there, there arose this discrepancy according to verse number one. The number of the disciples had been multiplied, but there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministrations. So one of the things that the church established very early on was a ministry to take care of the needy. In particular, the widows that were amongst the body of believers there in Jerusalem. Uh, they used part of the offerings that had been given in order to care for widows. By the way, this is still a very important thing that a church ought to be involved in, caring for those who are needy. James 1.27 says that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, biblically, we can look at 1 Timothy chapter 5 and see that the family has the first responsibility, but the church is also to be there to assist, and if there is no one else, to be the primary one to take care of, of this, uh, the widow who might uh, be in need. And so what was going on here is that there was a, I will call it an unintentional neglect of some of the widows particularly the Grecian widows, and, and uh, these were could have been people who were of uh, Greek ancestry but had converted to Judaism. Uh, some people think that they were uh, Jews who had lived in Greece and come back to Jerusalem, but it was a kind of a, 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 um, a section of or a part of the, the group of, of widows, and they were being unintentionally neglected while the Hebrew widows were receiving priority. Now, we don't see anywhere that this was done as a purposeful slight or, you know, that there was some kind of uh, prejudice going on here. It was more than likely just an instance of somebody dropped the ball. Somebody slipped through the cracks. And now there was a problem, and it problem had begun to cause discord in the church. Notice it says that there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. So you started out with maybe just, you know, may have been just isolated to the widows involved in the ministry, but then it spread out from there, and now you had uh, all of the Grecian believers, or many of them, are now murmuring and grumbling and complaining against this other section, and now we've, we've gotten to a situation where there's some discord. There's no longer unity in the church. Unity in the church is so important. You know, the early church, it says that uh, um, in, in Acts chapter 
uh, two at the end of there that they that they were unified together. Look with me there. Turn back to Acts chapter two, verse number forty four says, and all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Verse 46, and they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. There was unity there in the early church and unity is so important. A house divided against itself cannot stand. How can two walk together except they be in agreement? Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that we're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One of the things that the Bible says that the Lord hates, according to Proverbs chapter 6, is he that soweth discord among the brethren. And this problem, while it probably was not intentional, it wasn't being done to be purposely hurtful, it was nonetheless beginning to grow and causing more more problems in the church in the form of this murmuring and this division. So this is the problem, and it was, it was brought to the attention of the apostles. Um, they're mentioned in verse number 2 um, as the 12. And so they, they, they catch wind of what's going on here, and so they called, called everybody together. It says in verse number 2, They called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So we notice here this proposal by the apostles. The apostles were um, a unique class of, of local church servants, unique to the New Testament era, because uh, these were men specifically chosen by God who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and they no lo- we no longer have the uh, apostles around today because uh, they all died, quite, quite frankly. Um, so now that we don't have apostles, we still have leadership in the local church, and that's what these men represented. They were the leaders of the local church, and they got everybody together, um, and, and they, they had a proposal. They had a solution to the problem, and it was quite simple. Let's pick seven men that we can delegate this business to. Now, one important thing to note here is that this is establishing a authority structure in the church. Notice it was the, the apostles who were pastoring the church who called the church together and said, all right, here's what we need to do to solve the problem. Let's point men that we can delegate this to. And so you have both the office of the pastor there, and then now they're introducing the office of the deacon. And where we are now in, in history, those are the two offices that remain in the local church. One of the distinctives of the Baptist doctrine is we believe that there are only two offices in the local church, the pastor and the deacon. Uh, we can look at a number of places um, in, uh, in the Scripture. Uh, Philippians 1.1 is a great place where Paul wrote to the believers in Philippi with the pastors and deacons. So you have those two offices there in the local church. And, and God in His wisdom has ordained this authority structure, if you will, if you want to call it that, uh, in order that things might be done decently and in order. So it is not the deacons who are over the pastor. When it comes to uh, the authority and the accountability of the local church, the pastor is the under-shepherd, 
He is the one who, uh, according to Hebrews chapter 13, will give account to God for how he shepherds the souls of those under him. And, uh, and the deacons, as we'll see here, their job is to assist so that the pastor can be freed up to focus on what he alone can do. The pastor is to be the overseer and the supervisor. Doesn't mean that he is uh, doing everything in the ministry, but he certainly should have his uh, uh, finger on the pulse, if you will, of all things and, and know what's going on. And the deacons are there to serve. Now, they propose that they select certain amount of men. And uh, notice the purpose of the deacons here, according to verse number 3. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, in the context here, what business is that talking about? All right, I'm getting a lot of... Somebody raise your hand and clearly tell me. Anybody? Yes, ma'am. All right, to deal with, to take care of the widows. So when it says this business, it's not a generic sense of let's just let them run the church. It's a, hey, we have this particular problem. Let's appoint some men that can take care of this business. So that's a very important thing to note here. Their job was to take care of a practical aspect of ministry uh, in order, as we'll see in a moment, to relieve the pastors to focus on other things. Now, here's a Sort of a trick question. Why did they pick seven? Why not 11? Why not 19? Why seven? All right, because it met the need. That's how much they felt like was necessary. They picked that number there. But you know, the Bible doesn't tell us how many deacons any church should have. Maybe five, maybe three, maybe one, maybe 29. I mean, who, who can tell us from Scripture? There is no specific number. Now, I have a theory. This is Pastor Chambers' theory. This is not Bible, all right? I try to be clear whenever I give you my theory that you know that, all right? My theory is this was the daily ministration of the widows. And how many days are there in a week? Seven, all right? So my theory is... They appointed seven men, one for each day. That way no man had to do it all, all the time. They could each take a day of the week and rotate through and nobody would be overwhelmed. That's all just theory, okay? Not Bible, all right? But what is clear from the Bible is that they picked a number that they felt was sufficient and the church agreed and that's, that's who they went with. And their, their responsibility then was to help relieve the pastor from some of the more mundane tasks of church administration, if you will. Now, when I say mundane, I don't necessarily mean boring, but rather things that pertain more to the uh, just the, the physical aspect of, of church ministry, if you will. There are a lot of aspects of church ministry that because... I mean, we're, we are a local church that exists in the world. We have things that we have to take care of physically, like we have buildings and we have uh, different aspects of, uh, of the ministry, like, um, I, I, like cutting the grass. That's a great, great one, right, Brother Jerry? That grass is not going to cut itself. And we're in Georgia, so we were cutting the grass in February for, you know, it just, it's good. The things like that, that, that we have to take care of, that we have to be concerned about. Uh, it would be wonderful, would it not, if we could, give 100% of our attention all the time to only spiritual things. But that's not the case. We live in, a, in this world and there's things we have to take care of, uh, like making sure people have enough to eat, right? And so that's was, that was their job. The purpose of the deacon was to be appointed 
an important word there. They were, the, they were appointed to that office by the, by the church and by the pastors, and they would serve over that business. Now look at verse number 4, where we find here the priorities of the pastor. Notice what they said in verse number 4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. In our modern day and age, that is a challenge consistently to me. Every time I read it, every time I study it, every time I revisit this passage, it's a challenge to me. Because, and, and I don't know that the, that the apostles were able to do this 100% perfectly, but here was their goal. They wanted to give maximum amount of time to praying and preparing to preach and teach the Word of God. That's what they wanted to do. Now, I guess ideally you might say they wanted to spend all of their time praying and preparing and, and preaching the Word. Now, I don't know that that's possible, but that was certainly what their emphasis was on. We would say it this way, that was their priority. And it doesn't mean that the other things were not important. Obviously, as we see here, they were very important. It was just that there were some things that God called them to do that God had not called these other men to do, and therefore they could delegate these responsibilities to these other men so that they would have more time to focus on the priorities. Part of the, part of the problem in our culture is, is the, just the cultural expectations that is put on the pastor. Now, I know I'm a pastor, and so you may think this is a little bit, you know... Um, self-promoting here. I do not intend to be that way at all. I think it's important for us to have a biblical concept of a pastor. But culturally, there are a lot of expectations that are put on pastors that are not necessarily biblical priorities. And I think that's something that we, that a church, a church hurts itself when the pastor is not freed to focus on the priorities. And so the deacons, as were first appointed here, were, were appointed so that the pastors, the apostles in this case especially, could give themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, I see a responsibility coming both ways here. I see a responsibility on the church to make sure that the pastor has the help that he needs, but I also see the responsibility on the pastor to make sure he's putting the emphasis where God puts the emphasis. Look, uh, I'm human. I know that comes as a shock to some of you, but I am. I really am. And so I get distracted sometimes. I'm tempted to, to, uh, uh, to focus on things that are not important. And I, I, I have to be careful about this as well, that I keep my priorities as a pastor. Brother Riffle in the same position as he's uh, working in the ministry here and he's teaching the teens and preparing for upcoming lessons and different things like that. And, uh, you know, he has to be careful about that as well. And so any, any man who is in that position has to be careful to keep the priorities right. One of the things that I think especially, it's often, unfortunately, the first thing that falls by the wayside is the ministry of prayer. And that's so easy for a pastor to let slip because that's something that nobody else really sees if it's done right, you know? That's, that's, an, that's an aspect of ministry that doesn't get much screen time. 
Uh, and But you know, it's important as a pastor, I realize this, that I have to be praying consistently for our church and for each of you as individuals, for your families and the needs that you have. I think a lot of 1 Samuel chapter 12 where Samuel said, I know this is a different context but in the Old Testament and he was a prophet, but listen to what he said. He said, moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. That's a wonderful verse for every pastor to keep in their mind. So we have the priorities of the pastor and then next... I think it's number five, if you're taking notes today, is the, uh, the, the prerequisites of a deacon. From verse number three again, we see first of all that they're supposed to be men of honest report, they're supposed to be Holy Ghost filled, and they're supposed to have wisdom. And these were the first three qualifications that were listed here. Um, now, there are some other things that are just taken for granted and assumed, like, first of all, they, they've got to be saved. You know, you would assume the deacons are saved. There's some I've had some questions about. Not any of you here, all right? But, you know, you would assume they're saved, and we know that they were because they were a part of the disciples. They were a part of the church. We go back to Acts chapter 2, and it says, The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so they're saved. They follow the Lord in believer's baptism. They're a member of the church. And, and, and of course, they must be in good standing with the church. And, and then it says that they have to be of honest report. They need to be men that you can trust. Men that uh, you feel like uh, um, are not going to, uh, you know, be doing things that are, that are shady and doing things that are questionable. They need to be full of the Holy Ghost. That idea is meaning to be controlled by the Holy Spirit that they are walking under the Spirit's direction in their life. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The deacons must be filled with the Spirit if they're going to serve properly, if they're going to assist in the ministry as God would have them to do. And then it says they have to be full of wisdom as well. They have to have wisdom. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to have a a whole lot of formal education, but they need to have godly wisdom, and they need to know how to access godly wisdom. i tell you, one of the greatest blessings serving with these men here at Philadelphia Baptist Church who who serve as deacons is is the, the privilege I have of gleaning wisdom from them. And I try to be very intentional about that, um, and and be able and, and try to be very careful in asking them their opinions on things. And and uh, you know these men that serve here, they're they're wonderful men. They love God. Um, they they want to please the Lord, and they want to be agreeable. You know, sometimes my biggest challenge is drawing out of them an objection. Come on, tell me something that may not be good about this, you know? But I, I need that wisdom. We need their wisdom. We need them to help us as we, uh, you know, we seek to uh, uh, follow God's will. Turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. and Let me show you another list of qualifications that is given in the New Testament for the deacon. First Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy includes the qualifications for a pastor in the first part, and then later in chapter 3, beginning in verse number 8, qualifications for a deacon. Which, by the way, as we read through this, understand that every one of these qualifications is a spiritual characteristic that every Christian should have. 
We should all be striving to be this way. But they're listed here as a qualification that if you're not this, if you're not doing this, then you're not qualified to serve in this capacity. All right, so this is, this is what it says in verse number 8. Likewise, the deacons must be grave. What does that mean? Does that mean they can't smile, they can't crack a joke? No, thankfully not. I'd have a hard time getting along with them. But uh, no, it means that they take life seriously. It's, it's possible to take life seriously and not take yourself too seriously. All right, <laughs> I'm thankful for men that have found that balance. But they take life seriously. They're not double-tongued. What they say, they mean. You can count on them. They'll do what they tell you they're going to do. Not given to much wine. They're not alcoholics. They're not greedy of filthy lucre. They're not going around seeking ill-gotten gain. They hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. They have an overall life that is, that is pure, that is not a, a hindrance to the gospel. Their testimony is one that is a help to a gospel. And then verse 10, let them also be proved. Then let them serve the use rather, the office of a deacon, being found blameless. So they have to be men that are proven, not novices, but men who are, uh, have had time to establish a track record of, of godly character. You know, sometimes men are put into positions of leadership too fast, and that's never good. Because with that becomes a, comes a lot of temptations that they may not be prepared for yet. But then verse 11 goes on to say, even so must their wives be grave. There's qualifications here for the wife as well of a deacon, not slanderers. Um, the word slanderer, slanderer there is literally in the original, a she-devil. That's what it means in the original. Uh, one who goes around um, running other people down. She can't be that. She must be sober, must be faithful in all things. And then verse 12, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. One and only one is the idea there. Uh, ruling their children and their own houses well. It's the same qualification given of a pastor. He has to rule his house well and his children well. Uh, because if he doesn't know how to rule his own house, then how can he lead in the local church? Verse 13, for they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So these are the qualifications, and we don't have time to do a study on every single one of them, but you get the idea that these, these are men who have met a certain level of spirituality, of maturity, you might say, and because of that, the church has recognized their godly character sufficient to set them aside to serve in this special capacity as a deacon. So these were the kinds of men that God had appointed through the local church to serve in the office of a deacon. These were the cream of the crop kind of men, if you will. Not in, a, not in an arrogant or prideful sense, but simply they were men who were spiritually mature, who could come alongside the apostles and could help them and could be a blessing to them. So the church does this, and let's go back to our text and look at verse number 7. So the church, verse 6, sets them apart and prays over them and lays hands on them, and that laying on of hands, as we'll see in a minute, is a sign of a, a approval and association. 
That we are saying that we, that these men are the ones that, uh, that we feel the Lord would have serve our church in this capacity. And then verse number seven, the word of the Lord increased and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem and a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. Notice the result here. When these men began to help, began to do what they were doing and helping oversee this, this very practical aspect of the ministry, the result was continued growth of the church through the salvation of souls. The word of God increased. The number of disciples multiplied. And it specifically mentions that a company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Who were the priests? Well, these were the, uh, the Jewish men who led in the worship of God and in the teaching of Scripture in the synagogues and in the Jewish community. And a number of them even got saved. What we see here is that God's ministry, the, the ministry of the local church is continuing to blossom, continuing to grow and God's power is evident through this local church. That is the blessing of the deacon. That when the deacon or deacons, when they do what God has called deacons to do and serve and, and help and, and, and relieve the pastor of, of, of certain responsibilities so that he can focus on prayer and preparing and preaching, then the result is that the church is blessed by it. But then there's something else we note, and that was, and this, this kind of goes along or uh, helps us understand more the quality of the men that were chosen. In verse number 8, we are introduced again to one of those deacons, a guy by the name of Stephen. He doesn't spell his name right, but that's okay. He's still a good guy because it says he's full of faith and power and did great wonders and miracles among the people. So notice last year the preaching of a deacon. We're not going to, we don't have time to go through the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7, but let's just notice a couple of highlights from the life of this one deacon that we kind of, uh, we get a little bit of a snapshot of him. First of all, he was a spiritually strong man. He was full of faith and power. He did great wonders and miracles among the people. It was still in this transitional time and some of the sign gifts still active. And, and Stephen was one who stood up and uh, he, he was spiritually strong. He was full of faith and he was able to do a mighty work for God. His speech was right too. Look at verse number 10. It says, They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. He began to proclaim the word of God and he did it in such a fashion that they, 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 they couldn't say anything bad about how he was saying what he was saying. Not only did he say what was right, but he said it the right way. The scripture was his authority, number three. If we look at chapter seven, we find that in this sermon that he preached, he basically gives them a very uh, Cliff Notes version of Old Testament history. I mean, the guy knew his Bible. I mean, he just rattled it off right there. And by the way, he didn't have an app on his phone to open up and read it off to him either. He knew Scripture, and the Scripture was his authority. He proclaimed to them the truth of the gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ and took them back to the Old Testament to prove everything that he was saying. But then the thing that we, of course, remember Stephen for the most is that he became the first martyr of the New Testament church. At the end of chapter 7, they stoned him. Acts 7.59, they stoned Stephen calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud vo voice, Lord, lay not this into their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 
These two young men are thinking, is that really what we got to do? No, hopefully it won't come to that. But the truth was, he was willing to sacrifice his life for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was willing to sacrifice everything, even his life, for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the kind of man he was. You know, that's the kind of Christian all of us should strive to be. One who is spiritually strong, who has right right speech, who uses the Scripture as their authority and who sacrifices themselves for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the kind of man that Stephen was and it was the kind of deacon that God used to bless the New Testament church in a wonderful way. So what's the purpose of a deacon? It's not just to be yes men. It's not to run the church for us. It's not to be a board of directors. No, the purpose of a deacon is to simply assist the pastor and the work of the local church so that the Word of God might continue to flourish. You know the word deacon literally means someone who waits on tables. The the word itself, the literal translation of the original word is is a, a servant who waits on tables. That's the attitude and that's the, that's the purpose of the deacons in the New Testament church. I'm so thankful that over the years, you know, I, I joke about deacons sometimes, and I have known some rascals, but I will tell you this, that the men that I've had the privilege of serving with in local churches that uh, served as deacons, by and large, have been, have been wonderful men. You know, I'm excited for our church here um, uh, one of the things that uh, I shared with the church last fall when we were discussing um, uh, nominating deacons is that uh, uh, one of the things I'm burdened about is that we train the next generation of men to, to serve in the local church and, and um, felt very strongly that we needed to uh, um, be doing that because as wonderful as the men who are currently, have been currently serving as, as deacons are, uh, they're not getting any younger, are they, Brother Dean? They're just not, you know? Um, and uh, part of our responsibility is to invest in the next generation and raise up men. And so, you know, uh, I believe that this is something that's very important, and I'm excited that uh, our church has, has uh, made the decision to uh, set aside uh, Brother Austin and uh, Brother Drew uh, to serve in this office. And, and in the days ahead, we're going to be working closely, and, and as they're learning the, the ropes, if you will, we're going to be helping them and and uh, you can be a help to them too by praying for them and, uh, and encouraging them in their service to the Lord. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, before we have a time of, of laying on of hands, I want us to take a moment as we reflect upon the truth of the message. And there's a couple things I think we can take away from this. First of all, it is God's desire to bless the local church with souls saved and disciples made. That's God's desire. And He has set up the pattern for us in the New Testament for us to follow so that that might happen. But we need to remember this morning that each of us has a role to play. From the pastor on down to everyone sitting in the pew, everybody has a role to play in that. Do you know what your role is? And if if so, are you fulfilling it? This is a kind of a hard message to give an invitation for, but the first thing I would invite you to do as you think about the truth of this is to go to God in prayer for our church.
and for your role in it particularly. Asking God to bless and asking God to guide and asking God to help us. And then the second application is for these men who serve in our church as deacons to pray for them on a regular basis. You know, we include them in our weekly prayer letter or weekly um, prayer bulletin rather because we want to be reminded to pray for them all the time. You know, the, with the privilege comes greater responsibility and greater influence can result in more attacks by Satan. And these, these young men that are coming on, especially I think about them and their families, you need to understand this, that they are going to be tempted, perhaps in ways that they have yet to be tempted in, simply because our church is saying, we want you to serve in this office. If we're going to put them in that place, then we had better support them with our prayers.